As we continue our study of Luke, we're looking at chapter 11, verses 14 to 28. I'll read it for us. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. When the demon left, the man who had been mute spoke, and the crowd was amazed. But some of them said, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. Others tested him by asking for a sign from heaven. Jesus knew their thoughts and said to them, any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I drive out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. When an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. Then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. As Jesus was saying these things, a woman in the crowd called out, Blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. He replied, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. This is the gospel of the Lord. And uh, like I alluded to, we're continuing our work through the book of Luke, chapter by chapter, in order to see Jesus at the beginning of every year. And the text that we're looking at today is actually a portion of a larger section of Luke's gospel. Uh, If you would look at this text, you would see that it's actually connected to the next couple verses that come after it, all the way to verse 36 of this chapter. And uh, the reason we're taking it in portions is actually the text breaks apart very well uh, around two challenges that Jesus receives in the beginning of this text. We just read it. The first challenge is where they say, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. That's challenge number one in verse 15. Then in verse 16, it says, some others were challenging him by asking for a sign from heaven. What then follows in the text is Jesus' answer to the first challenge, which is the text that we're looking at today, and then up to verse 36 is his response to the second challenge, which is the challenge for a sign. Now, as you maybe noticed as we were reading through this text, there is just a lot of stuff in here that is not easily understood, and so for the sake of time and your spiritual formation, we're going to break this text into two parts. We'll pick up verses 29 to 36, his response to the second challenge next week. But for this week, we're going to just focus on that first challenge and the first response that we get in this section, Uh, that Jesus is driving out demons by the power of demons and what Jesus says in response to that. So if you grabbed a notes sheet, there are four points on there. We're just gonna walk straight through the text because the text kind of breaks into four little parts. We're gonna talk about how Jesus is God. Secondly, how he's Lord over the demons. uh, Thirdly, about the vacuous soul. We'll explain that when we get there. And then finally, the blessing of the word. So you can follow along with the notes sheet there and uh, take some notes as we go. So the text starts this way. Jesus was driving out a demon that was mute. Um, Whenever the Bible talks about demons, there are a plethora of reactions that modern people have to the Bible's claim that demons are active in people's lives. 
Uh, For many modern Western people, maybe even the majority of modern Western people, they are highly skeptical. Uh, Either it's because they say there's no way that demons can exist because we can't test them or put them under a microscope, we can't scientifically figure out whether they are there or not, and so we're just going to avoid the whole idea. That can't be possible, they would say. And for others, they might believe at least in the concept of angels and demons, but they have really no way of understanding how those things work. And even if they do believe in angels and demons conceptually, they don't act like they're real a lot of the time. And so for modern Western people, Christian or non-Christian, the doctrine of demonology is, um, is sort of an anemic doctrine among us. We don't really have a sense of how it works. And so every time the demons come up in the Bible, I want to take a few minutes to just press down on this a little bit for us so that I I realize I'm probably not going to convince you if you're highly skeptical to like suddenly completely believe in the presence of spiritual beings or anything like that. But I want to at least open your mind a little bit to the possibility that that's real. So let me just ask you a few questions about this. First of all, where does senseless evil come from? Where does senseless evil come from? I think most people's answer to that is relatively pragmatic. People need more education, or people are hostile to certain people groups, or maybe these people are low in the socioeconomic status ladder, and so they're just trying to work for justice. Um, It could be any number of things, religious convictions, whatever. The problem is that that doesn't hold water, Because consistently across world history, every people group, whether it's a religious people group or a racial people group or a socioeconomic status or high or low education, every single people group at one point has done senseless evil against another people group. So it cannot be simply that people need more education because highly educated societies have done senseless evil. It can't be that any one religion has the market market cornered on senseless evil because every world religion, at least in name, has perpetrated senseless evil against another people group. It can't be that any one race or socioeconomic status is more predisposed to senseless evil because it's consistent across the world's history. So where does it come from? Could it be possibly that there are evil forces that are acting on all people at all times? that at some times in world history lead to senseless acts of evil. A second question, more personal. Why do you do what you don't want to do? You ever had this experience where you know something is wrong, you don't want to do it, you have the ability not to do it, and you still do it? How is that logical? Could it be possibly that maybe you're not just the product of your logic or your inner chemistry, but that there are forces that are operating on you from the outside? Could it be that those forces are personal, malevolent, spiritual beings who hate you and want you to go to hell? They want to give you a reason to despair over yourself, to look at yourself in the mirror and say, how could I? I knew it was wrong. I didn't want to do it. I could have not done it but I still did it, how terrible I am. Maybe one last uh, question, and that is, if you have a, a predisposition against demons, like, why? Is it just something you already decided, or do you actually have a, a good, solid reason? I think the the most common reasons that I hear, uh, first of all, are rationalism. Like, I can't believe something is true unless I can test it, unless it logically makes sense to me, uh, unless I can see the work, so to speak, then I will believe in it. 
This is, first of all, just a cultural assumption. Not everyone thinks this way. This is just the way that modern Western people generally think, but also it's just not consistent. How many of you know exactly how the electrical circuits in your house work? I would guess less than five of you, maybe. And yet, almost every one of you is going to go home today and flip on a switch and believe that the lights are going to come on. Because you believe in things that you can't rationally explain. And you might say to yourself, well, the evidence is there. When I flip the switch, the lights go on. I'd say, yeah, the evidence is there. The Bible says the demons exist. You say, well, other people have figured this out. I don't have to figure it out. I'd say, yeah, other people figured it out. The Bible figured it out. And then somebody might say, well, you're just pre-scientific. That's what the Bible is. It's before a scientific era. It's when people were saying, you know, that every problem under the sun was the demons because they didn't know about things like bipolar or schizophrenia or, or Tourette's or any of these sorts of things. They, they thought mental illness was just the demons. Now, that's what C.S. Lewis called chronological snobbery. Have you ever heard this term? Uh, he, he described it as our sense that when we live is the pinnacle of all human existence and everyone who's lived before us has been an absolute moron. Here's the problem with that. Every one of them also thought that. Right? They all kind of thought the same thing. We're the smartest people who have ever lived. Everyone else before us was a moron. And guess what? They were all morons. What makes you think you're different? What makes you think that you, in the 21st century, have reached the pinnacle of human existence where you can figure out everything? I mean, maybe... That's a pretty arrogant position to have. Maybe we should say there's been a whole lot of history that has testified to something other than what we assume is true in modern Western culture. Maybe we should open our minds to it. So I don't want to go too much longer on that, but I want to press down on you and say, look, we have an assumption when we come to a text like this. Maybe we got to open our minds a little bit to the possibility that it's, it's more real than we think. So Jesus drives out this demon, and the people come to him, and they say, well, by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, he's driving out demons. Now, this word Beelzebul, you might have also heard it as Beelzebub. Um, don't worry too much about that in their society. Spelling, especially of proper names, was not that big of a deal, um, which is probably something like millennial parents need to hear, like they spell their kids' names all weird ways, and then somebody does misspells their name, and you're like, come on, is this how it sounds? Well, that's what they did, right? Beelzebul or Beelzebub, it's the same name, and it actually comes from uh, two concepts in Jewish history that they associated with Satan. The first is Baal. You can see it in the first four letters, Baal or Baal. Baal was the most famous false god of Israel's history. If you read through the Old Testament, they run time and time again into this false god named Baal. And Zebul or Zebub is the word for prince. So literally, it's Prince Baal or Prince of Baal. Now, another thing we need to explain here is that prince, for us, means something different than what it means for them. When we think of prince, we think of our royal family over on the other side of the pond. We think of people who are kind of just existing, waiting until they can be king. Um, that's not what they meant by prince. They meant somebody who was actually a ruler of a region. He was in charge of something, and it was specifically used in the Bible to describe the spiritual realm. So what is he saying by using this name? What are they saying? They're saying that the gods the false gods, are powered by, influenced by, animated by Satan and his demons. But the power behind false gods is actually demonic power. Um, again, I, I think we struggle to believe this, but it is what the Bible testifies to. And I think that should make us think twice about a couple things in our own lives. Like, first of all, that, that the false gods, the non-Christian gods of our society are not just like the Easter Bunny. They're not just imaginary things. They're actually like literal demonic powers that are trying to destroy God and his church. I know that's not a popular opinion, but that is what the, the Bible says. 
that there is one church, it is the church of Jesus Christ that believes the resurrection of the dead, and there are all the other religions that are trying to destroy that faith. Some of them try to destroy it violently, some of them try to destroy it subversively, but every single one of them is powered, animated by Satan and his demons. But maybe even for us, we, we need to go a step further and remind ourselves that, because most of us, I assume, are not going to go to the mosque or the temple or whatever after we're done here at church, that we also have false gods that have just as much power. In fact, did you know that when Jesus taught, he actually named the most dangerous of the false gods? Money. Right? You look at what Jesus taught in Matthew. He says, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He says, where you put your value, your monetary value, that is where your worship lies. Right? He got even more specific when he said, no one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one or love the other, or you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Mammon was a term, an anthropomorphization of money. It was putting a human characteristic to this God, financial wealth. Or Paul, Jesus' apostle, says it like this. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Some people, eager for money, have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. Behind these things is an evil force. It's not that money is inherently bad. Don't hear me saying that. But that Satan and the demons love to use things that we put our fear or our love or our trust in to lead us away from Jesus. And so for some of us, it's going to be money. We fear not having money, or we love having money, or we trust that if we have money, then we'll be okay. For others, it's going to be something else. If I'm attractive enough, or if my kids behave, or if I have the family that I want to have, or if that guy gets in power, or if that guy gets out of power, or if the economy, or if whatever changes, then I will be happy. Then I have something to trust in or to love. I'm no longer afraid. All these things, false gods, behind which Satan and his demons work in order to drive us away from Christ. So the claim is that by the prince of demons, Jesus is driving out demons. Jesus' answer to this is that any kingdom divided against itself will be ruined, and a house divided against itself will fall. If Satan is divided against himself, how can his kingdom stand? I say this because you claim that I am driving out demons by Beelzebul. Now, if I drive out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your followers drive them out? So, then they will be your judges. But if I drive out the demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So Jesus' answer to their challenge is actually a very logical answer. Notice what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, well, the Bible says. He doesn't say, you got to take it on faith. He doesn't say, I'm from God and I tell you what to believe. He actually just gives them a logical answer as to why their claim is wrong. It goes like this. On the one hand, he says, either your system, your complete religious system is run by Satan. Did you see how he said it? He said, if I drive out demons by the power of the demons, then what about all your followers who drive out demons? At that time, it was common that people would perform exorcisms. Jesus was not the only guy going around driving out demons. In fact, it was very common. The rabbis would do this. They would use an exorcism right to drive out the demons. So Jesus says, so all those people are driving out demons, and I'm driving out demons, but you say that I'm doing it by the power of demons, and they're not. That's not consistent. So, if I drive out by the power of demons, then they're driving out by the power of demons, which means your whole religious system is under the control of Satan. I probably don't like that answer. So, here's my other option for you. I'm the Messiah. And you might say, well, how does he logically get there? 
Well, look what he says in the text. He says, if I drive out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The phrase finger of God is a direct reference to Moses and the exodus from Egypt. So you remember this, the the nation of Israel is enslaved in Egypt for over 400 years and God sends Moses and Moses comes to the Pharaoh and performs miracles, signs and plagues against Pharaoh. And Pharaoh's advisors say, this is the finger of God. Very specific phrase. You see the connection? God's people enslaved by evil forces until someone comes in by the power of the finger of God to set them free. And then Jesus the one whom was prophesied in Deuteronomy would be another greater Moses comes and sees his people enslaved by evil forces and sets them free by the finger of God. In other words, he says, look, your followers, they need to do all this crazy ceremony and exorcism rites in order to get rid of the demons. I just tell the demons to go because I'm the Messiah, because I am God. So here are your choices, friends. Either your whole religious system is under the control of Satan, or I'm God. I'm the Messiah. What I love about this is that it's, well, it's painfully logical. (laughs) Because oftentimes Christianity is. It's just painfully logical. It's not, hey, you got to believe this just because you got to believe this because some guy went into a cave and saw something and you just got to take his word for it. A lot of the time, Christianity is just painfully logical. And the reason I say painfully is because oftentimes the logic of Scripture leads us to realize that the things that we're doing, we need to repent of. Let me give you just two examples of this. Um, Maybe you've heard me use this example before, but the logic behind there being a God Uh, If there is no God, then your entire existence is completely pointless, right? Because if there is no God, then eventually all of humankind is going to die in some cataclysm, be it natural or human-made, and there will be no humans left to reproduce, and so humanity as we know it will completely cease to exist, and then no matter what you did, good or bad, no one will even be around to remember it anyways. So you could be the greatest person who ever lived, accomplish everything you possibly could accomplish, and no one will be there to remember Or you could be the absolute worst person and accomplish terrible atrocities and no one would be around to remember. Which means that every single thing that you do, if there is no God, is absolutely pointless. There is no reason for any of it. Happy Sunday. It's painfully logical that there is a God because every one of us senses that there's some purpose to my life. There's some reason for me to get up in the morning. There's some reason for me to be a decent person. It's God. Or how about the resurrection of Jesus? The fact that historians agree on a number of facts, whether they are Christian or non-Christian historians, they agree on a number of facts to which the only logical conclusion of all of those facts is that Jesus rose from the dead. The only reason people don't listen to those facts is they've decided before they look at the evidence that it could not happen. How is that logical? Maybe it's logical to say the evidence all points to this one thing happening, and so maybe we should believe the evidence. Maybe we should use our logic and come to the conclusion that Jesus is risen. He is our Savior. But of course, both those things are painful, aren't they? If there truly is a God, then you're accountable to him. You're accountable to live a life according to the way that he prescribed for you to live. And if Jesus rose from the dead, you're accountable to Jesus. You no longer can live the way that you want to live. You have to live by his rules. That's painful. And so we avoid it. We try to just not decide, like live in this in-between space where we don't have to decide these things to be true. We don't live consistently because if we don't live consistently, then we don't have to live in line with what Jesus says. So Jesus is God. 
painfully logically, unless, of course, you trust him to be your savior, which he shows you he is. This is the good news of this text. As he breaks us down and shows us we have no chance logically, he says, it's okay, I've got you. Look what he says. When a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overpowers him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Jesus is talking about himself. He's saying that I have the power to go into a strong man's house and take his possessions. We actually know this because this phrase, someone stronger, is the exact same phrase that John the Baptist uses in Luke's gospel to describe Jesus. He describes him as the someone stronger whose sandals I'm not uh, worthy to untie. So Jesus says, I'm the someone stronger who goes into Satan's house and takes Satan's stuff. Do you know what belongs to Satan? Every one of us by nature. The Bible says very clearly that every person is born in sin that we are children of our father, the devil, the Bible says. That we are not part of God's family. We are under the control of the demons. But Jesus says, I am someone stronger. And I come into that house and I take what I want, which is you. And so the good news of this text is that Jesus has the power to steal you from Satan. And just think about that. If you're a possession that's going to get stolen, how much work do you put into being stolen? Done. But if someone's going to rob your house right now while you're at church, your possessions are not going to speak up and say, hey, please take me. No, they don't. They're passive in the whole thing. And yet, that's what the Bible says is true about us. It is not because we have sought after God or we have done the right things or we have lit the right candles or said the right prayers or given our life to Christ, but Christ comes in, breaks down the door, grabs us and pulls us out of the sin and slavery that we were born into. And says, now you belong to me. And that is good news because I will not lead you down a path of despair, but I will lead you in a path that is in line with your purpose, which you were always meant to be, a creation to be loved by me and to be used to bless other people. That painful logic that you have to confront that says that I can't live the way that I want anymore is followed by the beautiful message that Jesus is taking you into a life that far surpasses anything you could find on your own. And so then Jesus draws a line in the sand. He makes it very clear who is with him and who is against him, who is resisting him and who is coming with him. He says, whoever is not with me is against me and whoever does not gather with me scatters. He says, it is clear. There are those who are with me and there are those who are not. There's no in-between space. And we maybe should meditate on that for a second as North American Christians where many of us like to believe we can operate in the in-between space. I can sort of be a Christian, like I can say that I'm a Christian, but like regular worship attendance or really getting into that whole faith thing, that's weird. I'm not going to do that. Unfortunately, Jesus has none of that. There's no in between. You're all in on Jesus or you're out. And I realize that's going to hit some of us. But it's God's invitation to the painful logic of the gospel, which is that you can't do this on your own. You need Jesus and Jesus is bringing you along. But then he describes these two types of people. He says, those who do not gather with me scatter. He says, there's a very distinct difference between those who are with me and those who are not. It's scattering versus gathering. Satan tries to scatter. That's his MO. He's always trying to separate people from one another. He's trying to separate people from God. He's trying to separate people from other people. He wants to break down the community that God intended when he created humans. And you can see how this happens. 
In society, as we become more and more polarized by the voices that we're all listening to, who, by the way, are very often pressed by the demons, right? We've been talking about this. What do people do? They become separate. They can even be in the same political party and still be at odds with one another. They can have ideologies in, 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 uh, in congruence, but then some differences, and they'll hate each other. Why? Because Satan loves to scatter. And even outside of just the way our society functions, isn't our day-to-day life this way? Don't we scatter socially? We all go to our specific silo of life, close our door, pull down the shades, and in the same house, live in separate rooms on their devices, not together, scattered. Isn't it true in church? As we are called by God to not give up meeting together, assembling together, how quickly we use something like the internet to separate ourselves, to scatter as we worship God. And again, scattering is not inherently bad. Sometimes you're sick and you stay home from church. Sometimes you had a bad day and you just need to introvert for like a hot minute. But, but it's not how we're supposed to live because Satan wants to separate people. But Jesus wants to gather people, right? He gathers people together. He literally calls his church the gathering. That is what the word means in both in Greek and in Hebrew. In fact, the word here he uses for gather is synagogue, to gather together. What happened in the synagogue? In Jesus' time, the people would gather to hear God's word, to listen to him. And it is what we have the opportunity to do. Of course, every Sunday morning, as God's word is preached, we gather and we hear God's word. But we also gather together around our tables at home to have devotions with our family. We gather with other Christians in life group to hear God's word, to pray for one another, to support one another. God gathers where Satan scatters. And so for us, let's ask ourselves, is my predisposition to scatter, to try to separate myself from people, to say I don't have time or I don't have energy or I don't have bandwidth for those folks, or is my predisposition to want to gather? It might be a great marker of how the love of Jesus is working in your heart. Jesus is one who gathered with people that would not have been like him, people who would have not lived the way that he wanted to live. People would have had different values than him. People would have spent their time differently or their money differently. And yet Jesus gathered and created a gathering in his absence. So Jesus is Lord over the demons. And then he gives us a third teaching, the vacuous soul. This is really an interesting teaching that he gives us. He he says, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. And then it says, I will return to the house I left. When it arrives, it finds the house swept clean and put in order. And then it goes and takes seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first. So what is he saying? He says, if a person is afflicted by a demon, and that demon is driven out, that demon will go off and do whatever it does, but then it will come back and check. Is the person, the house that I inhabited, Is it now inhabited by somebody else? And very often, it's not. It's swept clean. It's left open, vacant. And so that demon says, well, I'm going to come back because that seems like a nice place to live. And in fact, I'm going to bring all my buddies along and we're going to have a rip-roaring time. Jesus says that this is how the demons work. And we might say, that seems odd. How does that work actually in real life? Well, let me see if I can explain this for you. Um, In some sense, anyone can exercise a demon. And what do I mean by this? Every one of us is afflicted by all sorts of things in our life. 
And whether or not we can say those things are uniquely or specifically demonic in their origin, we all sense it as something like that, right? So even if you're not willing to agree with me that the demons are real, you'll at least say there are things in my life that I really don't want, they keep coming back, and they keep bothering me, right? Anyone can get rid of those things. I mean, at some level, you can do that. You can take therapy or take a pill or you can change your lifestyle or change your diet or change your friends or change something about you so that you can deal with whatever that problem is. The, the, the problem that comes after that is when you drive away whatever that evil thing is, if you don't fill your life in with Jesus, with the Holy Spirit, then usually you end up putting yourself in more trouble in the long run. So let me give you some examples and maybe this will come to light. Um, so many of you know that I work with a ministry called Conquerors Through Christ who helps people who struggle with pornography addiction. Um, and one thing we found, and this is true not just of pornography addiction but of other addictions as well, is that if a person is trying to stop using porn, uh, the worst way to do that is just to use willpower. Right? So it, if you struggle with using pornography in your bedroom at night, it would be a really bad idea to just go to your bedroom at night and think to yourself, I'm not going to use porn, I'm not going to use porn, I'm not going to use porn. Like that might work for a, a day, maybe a week, but you're eventually going to give in because you're not filling your life with something else and your mind is going to go back to its old habits, we would say, at least from a psychological perspective. You have to do something different. You have to get out of your room. You have to go someplace else. You have to fill your life with something or you will go back to your addiction. The same idea that Jesus is getting at, right? If you, if you try to rid your life of something bad, but you don't fill it in with something good, you're going to go back to that bad thing. Or you might just go to something different that's bad. Uh, if you're somebody who is overweight and you want to lose weight and you, you go hard at your diet and your exercise and you become fit, right? You, you become a healthy weight. Um, if you ever met one of those people, even though their body weight is now down to a healthy number, they are just as obsessed with their body as they used to be. You ever notice that? They're, they're into the fitness thing and the, the Instagram and the this protein shake and the whatever because even though they had a problem, they didn't actually fix the problem. They were still obsessed with their body the entire time. They just changed the outward circumstances. See, this is how we often work. If we don't fill our life with Jesus when we drive out something evil, that evil sticks with us or even comes back worse. Only Jesus, though, can fill you with the Holy Spirit. He can say, instead of these evil things, I am going to fill you with myself. I'm going to fill you with my love. I'm going to fill you with my words. And only then will the demons come back and say, there's no space for me here because the Holy Spirit dwells in this house. And so for us, practically, what does that mean? It means that as we think about what it means to change our lives, because at this time of year, January, most people are thinking about how can I make changes? If those changes do not include an increase in your time in God's word or time with God's community or time in prayer, you will not ultimately solve the problems. You might shift the problems to something else. You might get away from the problems for a time and only, only, and, um, only to have them come back later. You will not actually fix those things. And I'll just give you this anecdotal evidence from my ministry as a pastor. It is amazing to me when people have a problem, they come to me and ask for counsel how quick they are to take any practical wisdom that the Bible offers, but how slow they are to say, maybe I actually need to be in God's word more. If you come to me for counsel, I will talk to you about all the things going on in your life. I will give you practical wisdom from God's word. But one thing I will inevitably say is, you need to make worship and Bible study a priority. Because only there is God's power to fill your heart. 
And it's amazing to me how many people will not take me up on that. They'll say, no, I'll figure it out. I just gotta adjust my schedule. Just gotta have a different job. Just gotta hang out with different people. Just gotta change my mental space. Fine, but you're only driving away the demons for a little while. Last part of the text. The blessings of the word. So as Jesus was saying these things, a woman calls out, blessed is the mother who gave you birth and nursed you. And Jesus replied, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. And as Jesus says this, he wraps up the whole section. He says, this is the point. The, the demons go away at the power of my word, right? Now, the thing I want you to notice is this word obey. Because if you've been around here long enough, you know I have an issue with the way the NIV, New International Version of the Bible, translates the word obey. Uh, because obey in English has this connotation for us that we are supposed to do something in response to a command. That's what we hear when we hear obey. The problem is that's not what the Greek word means. Uh, the Greek word means to hold on to or protect something. So if I were translating this, I would say that Jesus is saying, those who hear my word and hold on to it, who guard it, who protect it, who keep it close to them, those are the ones who are blessed. And frankly, this fits with the rest of the gospel. Jesus has never said to us, the ones who hear my word and do good works, those are the ones who are blessed. No, Jesus has said, the ones who hear my word and believe those words, who hold on to them tightly as their only life to line, those are the ones who are blessed. And that's, command, that's our command from Jesus too. Whatever you're afflicted with, whether you want to call it the demons or not, the only real solution is a word from God, a word of comfort, that Jesus has you, that he broke into Satan's house and stole you. He put his name on you in water. He continues to feed you generously with bread and wine. He gathers you around other people who will speak those words to you so your faith can grow and be strengthened. Blessed are those who hear the word of God and hold on to it tightly. And so let's summarize this whole text. We'll summarize the whole context and then we'll be done. Look at what Jesus is saying. Somebody says, you're driving out demons by the power of demons. Jesus says, that's not logical. What's logical is that I'm God and I've come to save you. So listen to my words because my words will drive away the demons. You may want to drive them away on your own, but that will only last for a little while. Plug into what I give you and hold on to it tightly. And the comfort that you need will be there for you. And even if the affliction doesn't go away, the promise that someday these afflictions will all go away when Jesus comes back and takes us to be with him forever, that promise is yours. And then let's look at the bigger context. The last couple sections that we've studied have all built one big idea for us. Back in chapter 10, we heard the parable of the Good Samaritan where Jesus said, I am the one who is different from you who steps into your life when you are broken down, beaten, and bloodied on the side of the road, and I pick you up and I put you on my own donkey. I pay the cost for you and I give you to somebody who will take care of you until I come back. And then we hear the story of Mary and Martha where Jesus says, the one thing that's needful, Martha, in all of your anxiety and depression and, and invasive thoughts is my word. That is the one thing you need. And then last week we heard about prayer. How are we supposed to respond to God? When you pray, say, say my words. I've given you these words to pray. And then the text that we have for today, the power of the word over the demons, over everything that afflicts us. So at the risk of being a broken record, find God's word and hear it. Hold on to what it says. Trust it in all circumstances. The power of Jesus will be with you against anything that you're struggling with. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your word. 
given to us clearly and taught to us regularly. We ask that if we struggle to make your word a priority, you would adjust our lives for us, that you would step in and make it easier for us to hear your word and to believe it. We pray for your Holy Spirit to fill our hearts, to drive away the power of the demons that afflict us in any number of ways. We ask you to remind us of your promise that you have bound Satan and that he no longer has control over us. And finally, we ask that you'd give us the opportunities to share this good news with others. These words that you have given us which have enlightened our souls and freed us from the slavery that we had to sin. Give that same freedom to others through us as we speak your words. Amen.